the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on a dingy Wednesday afternoon from Berlin. Berlin, I feel like saying today. Where the talk of the town is the news that King Charles of the United Kingdom will be visiting at the end of March. Presumably not clutching copy of his second son's highly controversial autobiography. Talking of high-profile former Oprah Winfrey interviewees. Not only in Berlin, but everywhere else. It's also the 10th anniversary this week, would you believe, of that Lance Armstrong confession. Anyway, my name is Daniel Freeber and I am the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will mainly be talking about the 2023 Vuelta a España, which, yes, was presented in Barcelona yesterday. Without further ado, I will introduce our guest, the guest that will help me do that, talk about the Vuelta. Coming to us from Madrid, like Lionel Messi, she moved from Argentina to Spain in her formative years and took the world of sport by storm, though as far as we know has never tarnished her legacy by posing for selfies with Salt Bay. She's also managed to preserve her reputation despite starting her career in cycling at Festina. That is working for them at the 2007 Vuelta at the safe distance of nine years. Nine years, have I got that right? Yep. Um, after Willie Votes, Fiat got raided. She's a reporter, an author, a presenter, and also the voice of our sister podcast, El Cycling Podcast, which for those who aren't fluent in Spanish means The Cycling Podcast. She's making her full debut on the ramshackle anglophone version today. She is Laura Meseguer. Laura. Hello. Welcome. Hello, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I have a lot in common with Lionel Messi, but that, yeah. Go on, go on. Comparison go on. Tease us, tease us <laughs> no, with a couple I, of these I will details. Leave it. <laughs> I will leave it there. I will leave it there. You've also been in, yeah, ba- thank you for you, you've also been in Barcelona, you know, a city very much, very much associated with, certainly more, more readily associated with Lionel Messi than Madrid, where you are. Incidentally, tomorrow I'm going to see Real Madrid play not football but basketball they're playing Alba Berlin in the Champions League of Basketball I'm going to watch that ah. first time I've ever seen them um, Laura let's get to our next guest um, he's also joining us from Spain but he's joining us from Soyer in Mallorca in the Balearic Islands a town famous with beautiful port the oranges once prized by Louis XIV of France as previously discussed on the pod and in 1978 for the claims by local bar owner Juan Coy otherwise known as Johnny Memphis, that he had been contacted by aliens. As reported by media throughout Spain at the time, Coy later persuaded between three and 6,000 fellow islanders that they would meet his extraterrestrial pen pals if they joined him on a moonlight camping expedition to the summit of Pujmayor. Alas, the Martians never materialized. But four decades later, a man with an otherworldly ability to commentate on bike races did not only visit but settle in Soyer. We can be sure that he'll never pose with Salt Bay as he doesn't tolerate anyone putting anything on his food, not even seasoning, as also previously discussed on the pod. It's our old mate, Roberto Hatch. Bondia, how are we? Um, how are we doing? Do you know what? Just to add to the John Coy story, there was actually an investigation carried out in, I think, 2016 by two journalists or people <laughs> pretending to be journalists in a restaurant in Soya. I think they went by the name of Freebutt and Hatch. Um, and they actually got as far as going to the restaurant owner's computer in the corner and having a look at the article. Was that not true? 
it was true. We didn't manage to establish much, did we? But this is a we didn't really find anything out. No, but. this is a fascinating story. Um, there were, I mean, at the time, what's the what's the Spanish equivalent of the FBI? Um, they investigated. We've got fifty-five million different police forces. <laughs> well, don't worry. <laughs> um, this was all investigated by the FBI, and it's a real hotspot where you are, Rob. It's a real hotspot for ufologists, people who are interested in believing UFOs and um, alien extraterrestrial activity. <laughs> Um, it's lovely. You can see the moon at night, you see. It's because there's no light pollution. And I think that's why... Well, did they work out that it was an aeroplane going to Valencia or something? Yes, or, something or like that? it was the... Was it the thermal? Some some effect of the light and the moon um, caused by the big refinery in Cartagena in Murcia, I think, on the... On it was the some bollocks, line. wasn't it? It was, it was, it was <laughs> nonsense. Um, but a good yarn nonetheless. Um, I, I'm going to have to... I'm going to apologise in advance. Laura... I will no doubt lapse into calling you chaps at some point because we've been doing the podcast for 10 years and I've been saying chaps for, I know. 10, for 10 years. So if I do, um, either show me a yellow card, then a red one, or just, uh, well, politely ignore my insolence. Um, but both uh, of you... But, uh, sorry, Daniel, Laura. you are like uh, Rigoberto Duran. You know that one of his uh, goals for this year is not to, to, swear. to stop saying... Yeah, yeah I saw that. <laughs> Oh. He's not going to swear. Yeah, I know, I know. I've been listening to you for 10 years, so no worries. There we go. Um, Laura, <laughs> we will t- well, we'll talk about your podcast, the L Cycling podcast, later on in the show. But let's get on. Mm. We need to crack on with the news roundup because, as ever, we've got a lot to get through today. Uh, we've talked a lot in recent weeks about riders still on the market ahead of 2023. Well, that applied to Superman Lopez after his sacking by Astana on account of his involvement, alleged involvement, in the Operación Ilex doping investigation. As of a few days ago, however, Boyacá, he's from Boyacá, isn't he? Uh, He's from near there. Uh, Once favourite superhero does have a team, he'll be riding, he's already riding, in fact, for the Medellín EPEM Continental Division team, alongside Oscar Sevilla, among others. In his announcement video, we saw Superman riding in his new black kit and we heard the Rolling Stones hit Paint It Black. It was more than a flavour of that um, in that video of Rock Racing circa 2007. They did quite a similar video um, when they assembled a team of mavericks and riders who had been caught up in Operación Puerto all those years ago. I say that also because Medellín are interested in signing another rider who's wound up contractless for reasons to do with banned substances, and that is Nairo Quintana, who of course failed a test for the painkiller Tramadol at the Tour de France. Medellin offered Nairo Man a gig a few weeks ago, but he didn't seem to take it terribly seriously. Now it's January, and he still doesn't have a ride. So he may, Rob and Laura, have to take the proposal a bit more seriously. Um, These rumours that he may end up in that team are gathering steam. What do you think? Is this a bit like when Cristiano Ronaldo in the summer said that he would not end up in Saudi Arabia and then a few months later he's got being paid half a million a day to, to play in Saudi Arabia? I mean, he, he thought that some big club was going to come in for him in the Champions League and, yeah, maybe Nairo thought that a big World Tour team was still going to come in for him. Not happening, isn't it? It's difficult to see it happening as well. I mean... With, with all the sort of policies, we've you, you and I have discussed this, Daniel, whatever the rights and wrongs and whatever comes out in any investigations and judgments and things like that, um, there is a, a sense now that teams just will not want to be associated with the rumour, never mind the fact. 
Laura, you were in uh, Barcelona yesterday for the Vuelta representation. Any talk of Nairo? Um, I texted his agent earlier this week and radio silence. Nothing from him. Yeah, no, there were no news about Nairo because yesterday, no, there was no one with any connection with Nairo. And yeah, people were surprised about Superman Lopez. But um, some uh, colleagues from the Marca newspaper, they, they were saying... Like, he's one of the biggest names. I mean, he has, like, all the audience. Every time they mm. write on a story about Superman, he has a very good <laughs> numbers and audience. But I, I'm really surprised about Nido. I mean, I understand the situation, of course. But if you ask me, I wouldn't say that we would have been in January and he was, we, we were going to have no news about his future. Well, his future, his present, actually. Medellin could end up with Superman and Nairo Man. What would Sevilla, Oscar Sevilla be? Sevilla Man. Um, I guess we will know more old about man. it in, in a old week man. because <laughs> they are going to they are going to Tour of San Juan. So I think, um, yeah, we will know more there. Talking of old men or men of advancing years, <laughs> another rider who is without a contract for next year is uh, Domenico Pozzo Vivo. He was on an Italian podcast a couple of days ago um, advertising his wares, as it, as it were, saying that he would make a good signing for someone to take to the Giro d'Italia in particular, but nothing, nothing as yet for him. We're going to talk about the Vuelta presentation later, but it's also team presentation season. We've had a couple of those in the last few days. DSM's class of 2023 was unveiled from their training camp in Calpe. Along with the ambitions of some of their top riders, we learn that Romain Bardet will go back to the Tour de France and will be concentrating on GC in 2023. Meanwhile, in Switzerland, a brand new team was paraded, and that is was the new outfit managed by R Doug Ryder, formerly mm. the Team Dimension Data Boss. The team is going to be called the new team is going to be called Q36.5. Q36.5 is also a clothing brand so named as the garments are designed to maintain that body temperature. Is that 36.5? Is that optimum? I, I wouldn't have known that. They're right. Well, normally they say for babies, in the bath should be around 36, 37 30, degrees. It's a bit warm. Oh, oh, 36 or yeah. 37. Okay. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Their riders in 2023 will include Carl Frederick Hagen, Jack Bauer, Tobias Ludwigsen, and Gianluca Brambilla, among others with World Tour experience. The team is registered at the Pro Conti level, however. World Tour riders are back in action on the road, specifically in uh, Australia. I keep wanting to say, I keep wanting to pronounce words in Spanish. Um, I was going to say Australia, um, where the summer season is cranking up ahead of the Tour Down Under later in the month. Over the last few days, we've had the Australian National Championship road races for men and women. They were won respectively by Luke Plapp of Ineos Grenadiers, who's also the men's defending champion, and by Brody Chapman. Both riders won with solo attacks. Plaps coming with just 1.5 kilometers to go and Chapman's with around 11 kilometers to go in the time trials held earlier. Grace Brown of FDJ Suez took the third title of her career while in the men's there was a big upset as the brand new UAE team Emirates signing Jay Vine narrowly edged out Luke Durbridge to take victory. Um, just on the time trial, I should also mention that Connor Sens 
finished seventh. And Connor Sentens was also seen at the Bay Crits riding one of our the cycling podcast map um, Buffalo tribute jerseys, which was a nice touch. It was nice to see. I don't, not sure about the story behind that. We should try and contact Connor Sens or certainly our friends at Map um, to to find out um, what made him decide to ride in that jersey at the Bay Crits. But um, round of applause for him. Some more heartening news for UAE Team Emirates. They were, they are welcoming the veteran Australian director sportive Alan Piper back into the fold in a new part-time role as what they're calling a race analyst. As some listeners may well know, in 2015, Piper was diagnosed with prostate cancer, which later spread. And having already scaled back his commitments with UAE at the beginning of last year, he withdrew from his position as a team advisor due to the physical and mental toll his treatment had taken. He's back in 2023. I spoke to him earlier today about his new role. Let's hear from him. Well, I've had I've had ongoing treatment for the best part of eight years already, and um, the last couple of years it got pretty heavy. Um, and have impinged on my overall energy status and, and my ability to focus and uh, my reflexes and, and whatnot. Um, and at the end of uh, 2021, I decided you know, that it was really a bit beyond me to be a direct sportif. Um, I wasn't really clear and couldn't really find a, a clear pathway forwards with the team about uh, the change of role that I would take. So I decided that I would just step back and... Um, and, and focus on treatment, which which I knew was coming again anyway, um, and and would have an effect on, on, on my work level. Um, so I've had a year out. I've had uh, you know more or less uh, six months of, of, of pretty heavy treatment, um, where it's been able to uh, stabilise uh, the cancer and um, give me a, a sort of a, a, an open window for hopefully. Uh, a short period of time or, or, or a good period of time uh, <laughs> next six months, hopefully. Um, but uh, we'll be monitoring that as we go. So now that I've got more energy, you know, the, the idea is to, is to, you know, use that time beneficially. And, you know, I've still got cycling in my heart and missed it a lot and um, had spoken to Mauro, you know, uh, reasonably often during the year and was still in touch with today and, you know, uh, called up Machin at the end of the Vuelta to to congratulate him with the with the podium from Mayuso. Spoke to the the big boss, the, the man above, uh, Gianetti, uh, from the UAE on the last day of the Vuelta, and he he invited me back to the team and said we'd love to have you back to the team and sort of got my head head rolling. And uh, my my doctor actually suggested to me that I, I should try and go back to work and you know um, focus on something else and uh and something that i really have loved doing which you know sort of started the ball rolling and called up Janetti in, in in november and said look Mara, do you think there's a place for me in in the team can we talk about that and so we've basically you know, spent the last time i went to training camp in december for a few days to discuss and we've got to the point where we've found an agreement for some part-time um consultancy um you know which they're calling an analyst role and i can see that you could you could you could call it that mm. and then and, and was role yes somebody who can who can step back from everything you know the director sportifs are under the pump from more or less in a couple of weeks from now starting off in Judan under all 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 the way to the Tour de France and not a lot of time to step back and have, take a 360 view 
And, um, you know, with, with me working on that as one of the projects that I'll be doing, I'll have more, more freedom of mind to step back and look at different things and come up with other solutions that, you know, might help the team. So, Alan, I've been, I wouldn't say monitoring, but I've certainly been noticing your activity on Strava and, well, it looked as though you were becoming, well, you were certainly staying very active when that was certainly really good to see. But um, how important has that been as well? Uh, how much of a part has that played in, in you know, you feeling better in the last year? Well, look, I, I, I have to admit that I've had a difficult time riding, um, especially... You know, treatment started in March and, and my riding, you know, went downhill from there. You know, I was struggling to ride for an hour, mm. um, holding on to my wife's hip, going up some <laughs> false flats. Um, was not very good for my morale. And, and I did do a, a test ride on an electric race bike. Um, and after 10 kilometers, I was just astounded that what a difference it could, do, could make to me, you know. Yeah. And it's only helped me to 25 kilometers an hour, but that's more or less where I need the help. Yeah. Up to 25 kilometers now on the climbs and on the cobbles and headwinds and false flat. And it sort of gave me a new lease of life for riding my bike. Just so much fun to be able to get it out on the bike again. And, it, and you know, it's, it's weird. It's not, it's not about smashing yourself on the bike, you know, as, you know, a lot of older people like myself um, find out. It's about just that enjoy of being, enjoyment of being out, being on the bike and getting in the zone again. You know? So the bike has really uh, been a big part of my of, of my recovery and, and also a reason that I've, I think that I've been able to hold on for so long and, you know, keep such a level is because I've been able to ride my bike, not only for my physical health, but also for my mental health. So, Alan, just coming on to the role, I mean, you touched on it there. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 2021, where you were well, certainly observing the Tour de France closely. Um, I remember you talking about listening to podcasts, not our podcast, you were listening to Lance Armstrong's podcast, picking up picking up the odd, you know, tidbit from that and sort of um, get that gave you ideas. You were feeding it to today, feeding it to the team. So, you, you know, this race analyst role, it's a sort of role that a few teams have created and have now, but it, that's sort of how you envisage it it's um you know as you say the direct sportives are, are very busy and they've got their hands full on races it's it's taking a slightly more distant view and maybe hoping to pick up on things that they haven't seen on the ground yeah that, that, that's correct but but uh to keep to you know to, to pick up on things that they haven't seen but also to support them more in in their preparation for the tour de france so they're not having to use their time to think about things and me being in the background and being able to think about the course and think about what we need to see and think about what we might need to do and think about what others might want to do, uh, coming up with those thoughts and being able to share them and put them down on paper and I think are really important, but probably one of the even more important things is um, that pre-alignment and as I said before, the directors are so busy the whole season. Okay, you have performance staff, but they're also busy with other objectives and other races. And to have somebody working on on one subject or one project primarily, mm. okay, being able to split off into a couple of other things, but having somebody who only only works on that one project and focuses on that one project way up front, you know, um, can create that that pre alignment that, that every team needs and. Uh, I emphasize that word team. Mm. It's that pre-alignment and everybody knows what's going on, what's expected, what we're thinking, 
and everyone's on board with that, you know, instead of possibly, you know, just starting to think about it two weeks before, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's where I can be of support, not only to management, but to the director sportives and also to the, to the riders, you know, that, that pre-alignment up, up front to, to, to clarify things beforehand. Mm. Alan, I'll just ask you two last things, thinking about the Tour de France, um, without getting too deep into the weeds of the analysis you'll be doing. But um, obviously, Tade, you know, coming back, trying to win it, in 2023 and we had a conversation a few weeks ago on the podcast about you know he has this wonderful sort of nonchalant kind of joyous playful attitude to cycling and his work and you know it's, it's maybe not the sort of typical demeanor of the the guy who needs to wants to win at all costs and, and maybe that leads to some doubting whether he really you know he wants it enough or he wants to you know, literally sort of cut Jonas Vingegaard's head off kind of thing. Um, just maybe from afar, what you've seen in today over the last year or so and, you know, how determined you think he is um, to get that crown back. And then secondly, just about the course, um, how, how well do you think it will suit him? Well, firstly, I think, you know, as you said, today's a, a boy racer. He's a kid that loves to race his bike was to do different things, you know, hence riding Lombardy at the end of the season when everyone else is thinking about resting, wants to ride Strata Bianca because it's a fun race on the dirt. You know, when it didn't look so likely a couple of years ago that he could be the winner, um, but he did in 2022. You know, he's the type of kid that wants to have fun racing and, and do different things each year, hence riding on the Vaflander last year and nearly winning that mm. and wanting to go back this year and, and do the same thing. And I think, you know, that's a challenge for a lot of professionals is, is um, keeping that freshness in your head and that, and that burning desire in your head. And I remember a long time ago, Mark Cavendish wanted to try to do different things to keep his mind fresh. It wasn't mm. just going to be about the Tour de France because then you get stale. And Mark went on and won some really, really great races, including Milan San Remo, where no one expected he could win. But that, though, though I, see, I see a correlation there with today of, wanting to try different things and do different things because you love cycling, you know? Mm. Um, you know, coming back, I, so I think that today, you know, obviously the Tour de France is, is, is the main race of the year and it's something that is, is always at the, the front of his mind. Um, but having said that, it's that, that fun element that makes him such, such a special rider. And I, I, I think, again, you know, just with some um, minor tweaking on his part, that, you know, he can realize all of those things, you know, and I think, you know, that's the exciting part because we haven't really seen a rider like him mm. in past generations who rides Strata, who rides the Ronde Vaflander, who rides the Tour de France, who rides Lombardia. You know, we haven't seen that. So this is a sort of a new paradigm about about a different type of rider who's more old school than new school, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, coming, you know, to going back to your second question, the, the, the parkour for the Tour de France, yeah. I, I, I do think it suits Tadej very well. Um, in in my, uh, my first impressions of, of going over the parkour is it will be a hard race, especially starting off down there uh, in the bus country, you know, with three stages, um, which will be very nervous. A couple of uh, intermediate crossover stages before we get to the Pyrenees. Um, but not a lot of focus on the Pyrenees. And then we go into the Massive Central uh Puy de Dome stage with, with only the Puy de Dome at, at the end of the stage. Uh, a complicated stage going towards the Alps in the in the air there, which 
we're not going to change the GC, but could shake a lot of things up because, you know, a big breakaway goes away, hard to control. Um, you know, that that could lead to some scenarios. And then, you know, the main crunch of the race in the Alps with the four big mountain stages, including the Colombier and, and the stage over the you planning to Morzine and, and, and the critical time trial, which is also going to be um, a special event again, you know, with a, with a six-kilometre climb at the end um, and a climb halfway, which is only a kilometre and a half, but means you're going to have to judge your pacing strategy really well to uh, to divide your energy up over that time trial course. Well, Alan, I'm not sure we'll see you physically at too many races next year, but we'll certainly feel your influence, and it's it's great. Well, to have you back in the fold in some sense anyway. So, um, yeah, have, have a good year and, um, yes, stay, stay healthy. Thanks, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Hello everyone, Lionel here. Before Daniel takes his deep dive into the 2023 Vuelta a España route, I mean the Vuelta is at the opposite end of the cycling season from where we are now, I'd just like to tell you about an event that is just around the corner and that is Pod Live Sport which is at London's King's Place on Sunday February the 12th. We were delighted to be asked to take part by the organisers alongside some really impressive sports podcasts and Daniel and I will be reunited on stage. I mean, we do talk to each other several times a week and we saw each other in London when he was over from Berlin just before Christmas, but we will be reunited on stage at Pod Live Sport Sunday, February the 12th. Our slot is at 4pm and it's our first live show since before the pandemic and almost certainly our only live event of 2023. And we will be joined on stage by none other than Grand Tour stage winner extraordinaire Dan Martin. Winner of Tour, Giro and Welter stage wins, of course, a double monument winner. And no doubt we will look back and talk to Dan about his illustrious career. But more importantly, look back at the 2022 season and then ask Dan what he thinks the 2023 Classics and Grand Tours have in store for us. Who knows, we may even ask Dan what Daniel should call his cat if he were to ever own one. If you'd like to join us, and we do hope that as many of you as possible can come along on Sunday, February the 12th, at Pod Live Sport. The tickets are on sale now at sportspodcastgroup.com. Click on Pod Live. I'll put those details in the show notes. And if you'd like to read a bit more about the event and why I associate Dan Martin with a really important milestone, almost breakthrough moment for the cycling podcast in its very fledgling days, you can read a piece I've written on our Substack, thecyclingpodcast.substack.com. Sign up for our Substack and you'll receive it by email roughly once a week there are some other pieces that i'm adding to the substack as well and if you want to sign up go to the cyclingpodcast.com and just fill in your email address and you'll get the updates directly to your inbox but we hope to see you at pod live sport on february the 12th a tickets available the link in the show notes in the meantime back to daniel um, Rob, I think you, you've you listened to that interview with Alan Piper talking about, well, 
sounding pretty confident about Tadej Pogacar's hopes of reclaiming his Tour de France crown. Of course, last week we had, um, well, we had Tadej Pogacar ribbing, mercilessly ribbing um, our guest of two weeks ago, Larry Warbass, about, well, Larry said that he passed Tadej Pogacar frequently on training rides. Pogacar then took to Twitter to basically take the piss out of Larry, which was very funny. Um, but good to hear that Alan Piper is healthy enough to take on that role with UAE, isn't it? And it's good news for Tadej Pogacar as well. Super news for Tadej Pogacar, because, of course, Alan Piper was the man behind and the man behind the wheel, behind the planning, behind the car, when Tadej Pogacar surprised everybody. Of course, we already knew that Pogacar was good, didn't we, after the way he came onto the scene, the Vuelta the year before and all of that. But nobody realistically, I think, had him down as their favourite to win the Tour that year. Um, But Piper, a really popular figure, in cycling, popular figure in Belgium where he's been resident a long time. Of course, he's an Australian who everybody knows from riding in the 1980s. A really, and again, you talk to anybody in cycling, a really, really popular guy. So from just a human point of view, it's really, really nice to have him back. Julien Alaphilippe has announced that he will make the Tour of Flanders the main target of his spring and may even skip his beloved Ardennes Classics. Alaphilippe will ride Strade Bianche, which he won in 2019, Tirreno Adriatico, where he won stages in 2019 and 2021. He'll then do Milan San Remo, which he also won in 2019, before switching his focus to the cobbles. Alaphilippe also told L'Equipe this week that his Soudal Quick Step Manager Patrick Lefebvre had effectively offered him the, the opportunity to leave the team this winter. But Alaphilippe told Lefebvre that he was happy in the team with which he is under contract until the end of 2024. Uh, Lara, is this the first, is this a bit of a crack in their relationship? Should we be, if we're a, a junior Alaphilippe fan, should we be worried about this? I don't know. I think we have... Um a lot of information always from Lefebvre and um, <laughs> that's, yeah that's, that's a really it. polite way of putting <laughs> it yeah <laughs> like all the internal stuff that should keep you know internal I I think that yeah we have um, a lot of information but I don't know I'm surprised I'm surprised about this I don't know if now that they have Renko and some new talent they don't need uh, the former world champion but but um, I, I think I mean, when I think about Alaphilippe, I, I directly connect him to this team. I think it's, it's um, the place to be for him right now. I don't know if you agree with me or not. But. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, that sort of pattern, the trajectory of relationships with Patrick Lefebvre. One of his old huh? charges, um, friend of the podcast, Pippo Pozzato, made a comment this week to the effect of Lefebvre always does this with um, young riders or riders who mm-hmm. are the sort of men of the moment. He, he cossets them and flatters them and builds his teams around them and then as soon as he senses that they are slightly they're nearing sort of the mm. the plateau or um the point at which their their career curve starts to head downhill then he dispenses with them i don't know if that's just thinking back whether that was the case with the likes of boonan and well and others um maybe there's a little bit of substance to that i'm not sure i said that maybe that bonham was one of the few maybe got away without having yes. that sort of cast on him because of where he was from, because of what he'd achieved and what have you, but maybe only his passport saved him from, from being like that. If you look at the, the riders who stay on the team for most of their careers, they're generally like second-tier riders who will win the odd race, but they won't be an Alaphilippe or a Cavendish or a Bennett. Riders who 
have all maybe suffered a little bit from that treatment. But I think that's a, an old way to manage the team, no? I don't, I don't think the new generations of uh, sport directors will or managers will will do the things like this. I know. I'm, I don't know. I I I think about uh, Manolo Sainz, or in the case of um, I can't remember right now the name, but it will come to me later. Another um, former DS here in Spain. Uh, that they were like this, you know, old school. And I think times are changing and I don't, I don't specifically like this style. Yeah, mm. we, we heard a bit about that last week, didn't we? We had a long interview with Rolf Aldag of um, mm. Bora Hansgrohe and he talked about the different attitudes um, mm -hmm. in the, among the new generation and how they're sort of more motivated by opportunities than by money and also maybe more opportunities more motivated by a certain style of management a certain style of motivation as you as you allude to there Laura uh, remaining in Belgium there has of course of course been more cyclocross over the last few days most notably one of the most famous mythologized certainly photogenic races of the season in Zonhoven Rob is it Zonhoven yep 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 the big sandpit the yes the venue of course is much loved for its pit, sandpit and raucous atmosphere, a bit like an off-road sort of Alp d'Huez or a 16th hole at Scottsdale TPC for golf fans. Uh, the races counted towards the World Cup Series were won by Shirin van Anroy ahead of Puck Pieterse and Femke van Empel in the women's and partly thanks to a couple of crashes from Matthew van der Poel by a majestic Wout van Aert in the men's. Uh, Rob, some worrying noises from van der Poel after the race about the return of his pesky back problems. And to be fair to van der Poel, he mentioned them before the race as well. He said that he didn't know how his back was because we, I mean, that's one of the sort of peculiarities of the world. We get these sort of pre-race and post-race interviews. They all have to come through and nobody really escapes talking to everybody because there's you know it's not like there's 200 riders to interview before the race um and van der Poel was talking about his back problem and yeah and I hadn't heard him talk about it for a while I think we had heard last year that it was something that he was going to have to deal with for the majority of his career something that wouldn't go away but if you think about cyclocross and you think about the especially this time of year when there's a lot of mud you've got the sand these riders are putting ridiculous amounts of power through the pedals, a lot of watts, a lot of changes, a lot of changes position, dismount, remount, carrying your bike. You can only imagine that that puts even more pressure on, on the back. And not good news given the fact that he was, A, planning on riding the Cyclocross World Championships at home, which is basically his father's cross event in Ogrede. It's It used to be named, the race itself before it became a World Cup, used to be named after his father. So it's one that he desperately wants to try and win. Um, Wat van Aert's planning on riding it as well and given the fact that Wat van Aert's the king of the the big three you'd say this year with Pidcock and uh, van der Poel and, and van Aert turning up and racing quite a bit over the last month um, it's going to be difficult but yeah worrying times for Mathieu van der Poel and especially with the classics it's around the corner isn't it now two months away Lara um, you and cyclocross um, are you are you in the ranks of the cyclocross agnostics with me or what I'm trying to say is that it's a broad church here at the Cycling Podcast. If you don't like cyclocross, that is that is fine. That is a, <laughs> an acceptable position to adopt. I'm going to tell you, I have started to watch more cyclocross this season 
than the years before, especially because we have a brand new race here in Spain, in Benidorm, and everyone is talking a lot about the uh, about they've that. Sold the, they've sold a lot of tickets. They've sold. They've yeah. sold. I was reading in Marca today. I can't remember how many thousand. Might have been three thousand or five thousand, but an inordinate number of tickets have already been sold. Exactly. And yesterday in La Vuelta presentation was like, uh, you know, everyone was talking about that, like all the uh, little Spanish cycling family we are supposed to meet there. I'm going to be in Argentina, but uh, it's going to be very special, something huge. My neighbors in Madrid, they are going in a family trip to watch it. I mean, it's going to be very important. So I'm starting to watch more. Uh, cyclocross. So, cyclocross. so yeah, cyclocross <laughs> fever has gripped Spain. Yes, gone wrong. And it comes at a t- it just comes at a time where um, there's been a couple of really good results for Spain in international races as well. National champion Felipe Ortiz, who's from the region, from Alicante region, yeah. he mm-hmm. uh, got a top five the other day in one of the Belgian Super Prestige races. So big, big stuff. And the that race itself in in Benidorm is going to be organised by the national selector for the road, Pascal uh, Montparlé, mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, yeah, so like you said, the, the Spanish cycling family is growing and new disciplines are popping up everywhere. Well, in that case, let's have some races over some beautiful wooded tierras and not through <laughs> Belgian sand pits. Then, you know, maybe I might be more interested. Right, final bit of news. Last week's pod was recorded just a few hours too early to include shocking reports about Movistar's Ivan Sosa being attacked and literally pistol whipped by a lorry driver while out on a training ride in Cundinamarca in Colombia. Said driver and aggressor has since been charged, but so indeed has Sosa, Sosa for damaging the vehicle with a rock and allegedly and spraying water or some kind of liquid in the driver's eyes. Sosa, well, he fortunately suffered only minor injuries. Um, shocking piece of news. And, well, training for World Tour pros in Colombia can, as we have learned in the past, be a perilous business, um, can't it? Whether because of the traffic, the and you know we heard what we saw last year with Ian Bernal, his terrible crash. Even going back further to what well, we mentioned him earlier in the news roundup, Superman Lopez. Of course, Superman Lopez mm-hmm. got his nickname because yeah. of an altercation with with a gang of I don't know. Um, joyriders or something along those lines, or, or would-be kidnappers in Colombia. Yeah. It's a problem that extends over into Ecuador as well, because yeah. I think it was uh, Richard Carapaz who was actually offered a police escort by the government every time he went out the train. I think he actually, I think he turned it down because he didn't want to have an advantage over other riders having the same problem and basically wanted to reinforce the safety narrative and get people to you know be much more uh, aware of bike riders when they're behind the wheel and much more considerate but it is a problem unfortunately but again i'm not going to sit here in europe and say it's a problem that's confined to latin america because we know that we have problems on european roads as well it's um it's a dangerous old business sometimes unfortunately isn't it but remember, a, a couple of, of years ago, Tom Dumoulin was training there. Remember that he was posting a lot of the stuff on social media and so on. So, so yeah, but th- this year in Neos, they haven't been there. I think they are uh, starting like their session, training session in Argentina. So, yeah, that has changed. Yo no quiero parar hasta conseguir lo que quiero. Mírame volar. De tu mano llegaré muy lejos. Contigo ganaré. 
Well, Laura and Rob, that was a little well, trip down musical memory lane um, to last year's Vuelta a España. Of course, we did a lot about the official songs of the Vuelta a España in our coverage of the 2022 Vuelta. That song was called Come, Come On, Come On, and it was by Lorena Medina, um, as we discovered last year. The ex-girlfriend of a UK reality TV star called Joey Essex, was we it? found out. Um, but it was a bit of a banger, that song, actually. I was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they all are. Um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed listening to that again, and it took me back. It took me right back, Rob, to the heady days of last August, last year's Welter, of course. To be honest, um, when they ran the VT um, on at the presentation yesterday in Barcelona, Laura, um, it occurred to me how much I'd forgotten about last year's Welter. I was slightly ashamed of how much I'd forgotten. But last year's Welter, of course, well, it was the Welter of Remco Evenepoel, um winning the first Grand Tour ever for his team. Mads Pedersen, well, he dominated the green jersey competition. He dominated the sprints, really, didn't he? Jay Vines, two stage wins, the last dance for Nibali and Valverde. The two Spanish Wunderkinds, Wonderkids, um, Ayuso and uh, Rodriguez. And then, of course, the Fred Wright and Primoz Roglic. Well, incident in, in Tomares, just outside Sevilla. But... Laura, you were there at the presentation. Just take us, well, take us back 24 hours to Barcelona. Um, the world's presentation, well, it gets less attention than the Tour de France presentation, maybe even less sometimes than the Giro d'Italia presentation. But what kind of event was it? And um, yeah, take us back. Well, first of all, it was in a very beautiful build, uh, building in the Palau de la Musica Catalana, that it, which is a concert hall in Barcelona, modernist style, and built at the beginning, beginning on the 20th century, and uh, in the old town, in the Casc Antique, no? Yeah. Uh, Rob, Cas- you know more <laughs> Yeah, Catalan yeah, in the old town, yeah. <laughs> Casc Antique, old town. <laughs> exactly. So... And um, at the end of the presentation, there was um, um, a band with uh, two singers that they um, did like a version of the like Barcelona anthem um, singed by uh, Montserrat Caballé and Freddie Mercury at the opening of the 1992, uh, 1992 Olympic Games. And uh, I found myself at the... The last part of the night, it was like 1 a.m. talking with Eusebio Unzue and he was telling me how lucky we were to be there. That's true because it's an amazing place. And uh, he was telling me as well that it's one of his favorite songs ever. Like he listened to this song like every two weeks at least. And and a friend of him uh, has been telling him for many years that he should come to the Palau de la Musica uh, to to see a show and enjoy the music of that place, and he finally managed to do it and to see this version of Montserrat Caballé and Freddie Mercury, and then he told me that I didn't know he's a big enthusiast uh, about architecture and design. So we were, you know, in that place with all that uh, modernist design and 
yeah, it was really nice. I mean, it was the last conversation of my night and it was really nice to, to speak about something else <laughs> rather than how hard it's going to be next year in Vuelta España. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. Eusebio Unzue, of course, the manager, long-time manager of Movistar. I never thought we'd hear him mention the same breath as Freddie Mercury yeah. on the cycling <laughs> podcast, but there you go. Um, Laura, um, you mentioned there how hard the Vuelta is how hard it's going to be that's always a big well it's a bit of a cliche of these presentations it's, it, it struck me watching some of the reactions yesterday from people like Enric Mas and Juan P. Lopez that you kind of have to say it's going to be hard it's sort of like complimenting the chef when you go you get invited to a dinner party um, if you if you dare to say that it's not as hard as the previous years then there'll be a sort of collective sigh and it will almost be seen as an insult to the Vuelta but there was a lot of talk wasn't there yesterday yeah. about how hard the race is going to be yeah actually Javier Guillén uh, finished the show saying okay I see that the writers don't like it so that's good um <laughs> so but i i really think it's gonna be hard like one of the hardest in the last years which brings me to the question like is it going to happen anything <laughs> you know because sometimes when we see a race that is particularly hard then nothing really happens until the very last day so i hope it's not the case but yeah all the writers were like very open to say that it was uh yeah a bit too much, as as Marc Soler said, as soon as he he jumped in the on the stage, is like, how do you say it in English, Rob? When they say se han pasado, se han pasado. Yeah, they've gone a bit too far. <laughs> they've gone a little too far. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a general opinion. Marc Soler, of course, one of the Catalans who we think will be, we presume, will be starting the Vuelta in Barcelona next year, but. Um, we'll talk a little bit in a little bit more detail about the stages themselves and the weeks, the three weeks and how the race breaks down in third part. But um, Rob, the Vuelta and Catalunya, um, the Vuelta España and Catalunya, it's, uh, they've had a kind of an uneasy sort of coexistence, I would say. You could argue throughout their history. I mean, let's not forget the Volta, the Volta Catalunya, the tour of Catalonia predates the Vuelta España. Um, that was a point that was made yesterday on the stage, actually, straight away by the mayor of Barcelona. It was the, one of the first things she said, Ada Calau, and she came on, who I must add, gave a lovely speech, really welcoming the Vuelta, but it was a little point that she got in there. The Volta Ciclista well, Catalunya is the oldest race in Spain. Founded in 1911, the fourth oldest stage race in the world. Um, can you name the, the the top three oldest stage races? Yes. Uh, Obviously. What year did you say it was founded? Two, two, um, 1911. Okay, so you've got Tour de France, Giro d'Italia. Tour of Belgium. Tour of Belgium. Yeah. There you go. Very good. Very good. Um, but so the Volta Catalunya founded in, in 1911. The Vuelta a España has only started in Catalonia once, as far as I could tell, and that was in Barcelona in 1962. So a long time ago now. Of course, Catalonia does have a rich tradition of cycling. Um, it's the only Barcelona is the only Spanish city to host the world twice. But Rob, um, this is a subject you know a fair bit about the relationship between Catalonia and the rest of Spain. And you know, this is a big deal, isn't it? The Vuelta going back to Catalonia because it's actually it's kind of conspicuously avoided Catalonia or only really dipped into Catalonia every now and again over the last few years. 
I mean, the Vuelta conspicuously avoids much of Spanish territory, which, as you know, I have moaned to death for years about the fact that it never goes to the islands, which is where I spent, I would say, a lot of, if not at least half of my life now, first down in the Canaries, which it's forgotten about since 1987, I think. Um, yes, hello, Javier, we do exist. Uh, it'd be nice if you came and visited us sometime. Um, and, of course, where I live at the minute, in the Balearic Islands, which, let's be honest, is a lot easier to do. It's a bit like... You know, maybe the Giro d'Italia going to Sardinia or Sicily, something like that. Um, plenty of ferries over, so well, yeah, it'd be nice to have a visit as j- well. Just sometimes. before, just just um, I'll just interrupt you. Just before I forget, I will say that we're calling this episode "Tricky Greener Barcelona." Um, obviously, that's a bit of a play on uh, Woody Allen, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. But um, <laughs> the greener, the greener being referring to the fact that the, there yes. aren't the same well the last year there were two massive transfers that were undertaken well by plane by the riders this year there might be one plane journey um on the second rest day is it but it is a bit greener and it wouldn't be terribly green rob to go to the canary islands um no i not for one or two days i think a lot of people discuss this if you if you go down there then you've got to spend a lot more time down there i know it's logistically difficult but i mean I we're talking about the 1980s, we're going to say one visit every 40 years might be nice. Um, anyway, let's get beyond that because there's a lot of the Welta, the lot of Spain that Welta doesn't cover this year. You're right. So there's no Andalusia, there's no Basque country or at least the what is Euskadi. That, I mean, we do go to a Basque speaking area, but again, we could be getting into politics talking about that. Uh, there's no Galicia, there's no Extremadura uh, and no islands this year. But because of the politics, there's been a lot of Catalonia being sort of considered apart from Spain in the last few years, and that just doesn't go down to the Vuelta. Um, of course, Catalonia, like many regions in Spain, or because of the way that Spain is organised uh, politically, is an autonomous region. So it has its own government, its own parliament. It also has what they consider to, you know, the Catalan people, whether they're separatist or not, they have their own culture, they have their own language. Um, which is brilliantly conserved. Most schooling is done in in the Catalan language. So everybody, you go to Barcelona, um, you might hear 50-50 Spanish or Catalan. If you go to places like Girona, you will hear Catalan being spoken 90-odd percent of the time, um, places outside of the main city. And English. And English English. as well, yes. Uh, But again, we with an Australian accent. Yeah. but of course, the the recent um, avoidance might have something to do with what happened in the last decade, Daniel. And this sort of polarisation, this difference has been accentuated. Like everything else in the world, we've talked, I think, a lot of time about polarisation, social media, this strange age of the world and global politics that we're living in. But in, in a very, very quick sort of summation of everything that's happened for anybody who might not know. Try around not to 10 piss years anyone ago, off with this, please. Yeah, well, that, this is the difficult thing because, again, I, I'm... Everybody has their own views on this, but trying to to state the facts is difficult because, you know, this is a really emotional issue, not just for Catalan separatists, but also for people who live in the rest of Spain, Um, you know, for reasons. Rob's grabbing his pink, his bright pink fuchsia-coloured fleece (laughs) just to indicate how how emotionally fraught this issue is. <laughs> it is. And uh, I live in a Catalan-speaking area that isn't in Catalonia. And, you know, we could be talking for a long time about what people feel here as well, which is very different to what people might feel over in Catalonia. But around 10 years ago, um, there was a request from the Catalan devolved government to change their statute, which is their relationship 
with the central state. They wanted more power, more autonomy, which, again, many people will feel is natural. Other people, depending on your worldview and your politics, will feel is something that, that shouldn't be given. Um, that is an argument that will be had the world over, no problem. But, of course, because of the Civil War, because of the Republican past of um, Catalonia, which... I think it's rightfully proud of because they stood up to a dictator when uh, Franco was running Spain with um, all the awful consequences that that had. Um, there's still naturally quite a lot of resentment from people who want to cede from Spain, to cede from Spain, for, to leave Spain. But of course, there's a lot of Catalans who want to stay. And that all really blew up when this request to the central government came in. And it wasn't met with too much uh, kindness. There was a, a real mess up of, of, of what was playing and, and it, it was just a bit of a disaster. And it was happening around the same time as the last economic crisis as well. So everybody in Spain was, was really struggling. There was a huge housing bubble that burst in Spain, just like in the rest of the world. There was a lot of banks that went as well. And so if you have suddenly a massive economic crisis, one region wanting more money, there were opinions all over the place in Spain, added to those sort of heartfelt opinions of whether you're a separatist, um, a nationalist, whether you're a centralist or somebody who wants everything to be devolved and and all that continued and continued it continued to fracture and polarize and it all resulted in a referendum that i mean i think a lot of people who watch current affairs follow current affairs watch the news will have seen the the awful images of um spanish national police beating people who were trying to to vote in what they considered to be a democratic referendum. The problem was the central state didn't think it was democratic because they hadn't asked permission for it. And whatever side of the fence you sit on there, let's be honest, it was a really bad image, wasn't it? You don't want, you don't want citizens being beaten up for trying to, you know, exercise what they will consider to be their democratic right. Um, a few people were then put in prison, the leaders of this referendum. Again... Cool, blimey. Very, very I said delicate don't matter. piss anyone off. I said keep, I said, keep it facts. brief and don't piss anyone off. I know, the, but it's <laughs> such a complicated issue, Daniel. Okay. Um, but anyway, the people were put in prison. In 30 words. Uh, and in, the, in 30 in words, the last, tell us what is the current situation. The current situation is there's been a rapprochement between central government and the independence leaders to try and improve a bit of a relationship. Um, people, thankfully, have come out of prison now. Dialogue, though, has been hampered by conservative opposition in the centre, and we're still at a bit of an impasse. However, thankfully, things have cooled a little, which might, Daniel, allow the welter to visit Catalonia. I knew we'd get there in the end. There we go. And <laughs> uh, next August, the Vuelta a España will start from Barcelona, as we have established. And um, it will be, well, it will be a few days, where, a few days in Catalonia, as I said, that's quite unusual, and certainly in the recent history of the race. Laura, when the Vuelta route is announced every year, what's the first thing you look for? Is there a particular part of Spain that you always like to see included on the Vuelta route? What's, what does your mind sort of, your mind's eye, what does it, what does it gravitate towards? Um, yeah, for, first thing I think you... You look at the transfers, right? It's like the <laughs> the first thing we were commentating that yesterday. One colleague was already calculating the six hours we will have transfer while the riders are going by plane. But no, I'm always looking forward to go to the north, to País Basque, 
Cantabria, Asturias or Galicia? You know, I'm glad you said this, Laura, because this was, I was going to ask myself the, the question in a minute and I, this was going to be my answer, but I was going to talk about, do you know what I particularly love, and we don't get all the way to Galicia this year, we don't go all the way across to do all four of the regions, um, the Basque country, then Cantabria, then Asturias, then Galicia. I love the, the different shades of green that are typical of those four regions i've said this before on the podcast but in when i think of the basque country i think about these dark green these evergreen the sort of pines that hug the the mountainsides then cantabria these gorgeous luminous greens on the headlands um overlooking the atlantic then asturias you've got the darker greens again and the rocks and the of the the mountains of the picos de europa that will we'll be visiting or we'll be certainly going to the Angliru and then in Galicia you've got the eucalyptus trees which is a lighter shade of green and for me this kind of grading of the greens that you get across um, northern Spain it really it sort of mirrors some of the cultural transitions you get from region to region as well and I, I personally really look for that as well yeah it's beautiful and also in the the moment where we are when we are there in the last week of uh, August of the beginning of September the weather is really nice which is not uh, very common so and the gastronomy for me is uh, like the best you know in Spain is where you, I mean País Vasco or Galicia it's amazing or Asturias yeah Cantabria so I'm always looking forward to be there also it's not so hot because then when you are in the coast, last year in Alicante, Daniel, you were there, I think. Uh, I mean, it was terrible, so hot, so humid. I mean, it's nice if you are on the beach, but if you are working, the <laughs> following chasing riders in the, at the finish of a time trial for hours, it's just a nightmare. And, and well, this year, I think we are going to be also in that part of the coast, but... But yeah, I, I like it. We are going to Lecumberri, which I'm very much looking forward to that because I've never been there and it's going to be very nice. And, to go and with people this time. And with people, exactly. That because we, we went, oh, the race went there, didn't it, in, in the pandemic yeah. and, and it was a brilliant stage and I think there's a lot of uh, afición for, for cycling around there, a lot of fandom um, and brilliant, it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, and to have a little taste of uh, France because I'm I'm not covering on site the Tour de France, so it's nice to go back to the Tourmalet and yeah, I, I like it. I like the route of this year's Vuelta. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Okay, Laura and Rob, well, we've spoken about, we've focused really on the Gran Salida, the the big start of the Vuelta a España 2023. We're going to now, as promised, talk in a bit more detail about some of the stages later on in the race. And um, Rob Hatch, I'm going to invite you, without talking about referenda, separatist groups or any Thanks. kind of politics. It'd be nice not to do, actually. I'm going to ask you to come to take us on a guided tour of the 2023 Vuelta a España. We'll go, let's go week by week, shall we? Or let's start by going up to the first rest day. So that's nine stages. The first chunk of racing. What have we got in store? 
So the gran salida becomes the gran sortida as the Vuelta has us putting on our very best Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballer voices. We start in Barcelona for the short team time trial in the city, lefts and rights everywhere. Then the race heads from Mataró from the north around the outskirts on day two before it comes back into town for a tricky finish around Montjuic and its old hill and Olympic Park. Half the peloton can then nip home and put the kettle on the day after because the race heads up to Andalusia and a first mountaintop finish after then possibly a sprint chance in southern Catalonia in Tarragona after that but you never know with the wind blowing off the Mediterranean remember the other side of the bay from all those windy stages in southwest France on the Tour de France in the last few years further south too Havalambre brings back memories of a McLovin masterpiece and a free PlayStation the march south then continues through Pro Coffee Stop Land in Oliva. There's a visit to what they call the Inland Costa Blanca after that, but thankfully I don't think there'll be any Red Lion pubs, pints or English breakfasts at Choret de Cadí. Then the trip south abruptly ends in Murcia, an uphill ride to Caravaca de la Cruz, and already we're on day nine. Rob, what's the Inland Costa Blanca? Well, if you look at the stage to Chorret de Cati, it's obviously been sponsored by the tourist board because it says Costa Blanca Interior. So the inland Costa Blanca is sort of, I don't know, look where Benidorm is, look left. <laughs> and you're going inland and up into the hills. It's actually, um, obviously, everybody always remembers the coast, don't they? And, and places like that and, and all of those sort of horrible English breakfast areas and things like that. Uh, the embarrassing parts of the Costa Blanca. But if you look inland, there's a reason why all the training caps happen because there's some wonderful mountainous terrain, isn't there, around there? You mentioned Benidorm. Benidorm, of course, cycle across Mecca nowadays. Um, That's a lot of Belgians live down there, don't First nine stages. Now, when we talk about how difficult this Vuelta is or isn't, I mean, one thing that occurs to me, both of you, is that one of the, the difficulties in reading the Vuelta route and interpreting the Vuelta route is that we don't have everything sort of tapering or building towards these big mountain massifs that we do in the Tour de France. Um, and it strikes me that... If we are going to split this Vuelta España into three, they're almost like three self-contained self stage races. Um, a two, two of the weeks have time trials in them. Um, all of the weeks have a bit of transitional stuff, a bit of medium mountain and some high mountain action as well. And that's certainly the case. I think probably the second week is, is the hardest. We'll come on to that later. But um, there's a bit of everything, isn't there, Laura, in those first nine days? Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting. I, I particularly like uh, that already stage three, it has this uh, tough finish in Andorra, which means that you have to be ready. You know, I remember this year, Mikel Landa, last year, <laughs> Vuelta España, Mikel Landa, he was telling me that he was not ready the first week or not even the second week. I don't know if he was ready <laughs> at the end of the race. But, um, yeah, now you have to be ready. I mean... Mikel Lander probably just got the dates wrong. He got, he got the wrong month. Could happen, <laughs> could happen, yeah. But this year they have to be ready from the beginning because there is not going to be any rest, you know, since already stage three. And we have mentioned it that it's 10 top finishes. That's... Half of the race, if you take out uh, the stage in Madrid, is half of the race is um, a top finish. So, yeah, it's going to be demanding. Well, as I said, Rob, that takes us to Murcia. It takes us to, well, the end of 
week one, what we're going to refer to as week one. It takes us to Valladolid as well, where I think, I guess, we'll be spending the first rest day. And then the race continues, the race resumes with a 25-kilometer time trial in Valladolid. Can you, Rob, please take us to the next rest day? So take us to the end of stage 15, if you will. Yeah, so like you say, a few air miles are going to be picked up on that rest day. The bunch flying north from Murcia to Castilla León and Valladolid, City known for its football team as well. And current president being Ronaldo Nazario, the original Ronaldo in charge. Originaldo. Yeah, Originaldo They've Ronaldo. They've got a great kit. Um, They've got a great kit as well. They're playing sort of is purple. It, is it great? Purple and white stripes. It's very, very much like Toulouse in France. In fact, it's almost identical. Mm. Anyway. It's original, let's say that. Um, that's the individual time trial. I think it's around 25 kilometers of time trial in um, the only individual time trial of this race taking place there. After that, Dan Martin is going to have pretty good memories of the stage the next day because they go to Laguna Negra. That's on day 11. Then after that, Aragon, home of capital Saragossa, one of the most famous Spanish music groups of the 90s, Daniel, because you're talking about all of that. Héroes del Silencio come from up there and uh, plenty of music might be played around the Vuelta when we get that there. Um, famous football team from up there as well. So we'll go and have a day with the Maños, as they're known in uh, Spain. Uh, after that, we go to France, cross-border and... If there's no win the day before to shake things up on the way to Saragossa, surely this stage will shake things up because after several other pretty famous mountains in the Pyrenees, we go to the top of the Col du Tourmalet. Again, I think this was supposed to happen during the pandemic, Vuelta, wasn't it? When uh, everything was closed, we couldn't go to France because of that. We come back next year and hopefully with plenty of crowds. It should be one of the big days of Grand Tour cycling of the 2023 season. The race then comes back to Spain after that and into Miguel Indurain country. A new mountain top finish, Navarra's Puerto de Belagua, will be finished on. And I know that uh, Pedro Delgado has already been for a ride at the top. Wow, Pedro Del with Delgado. Miguel doesn't Pedro Delgado still look magnificent? Um, yesterday. He's wow. amazing. Yeah. We were is, speaking about that his yesterday. His hair is getting longer and curlier. Yeah. And, and he's 62 yeah. years old. And <laughs> I asked him because, sorry, Rob, I interrupt you just one second. Um, because we were talking about this video with Indurain that they filmed uh, climbing the La Rao. And I was asking him, like, who's in better shape, <laughs> Miguel or you? And he was like, oh, no, I think I'm... I'm a better climbing, climber right now. And, and you know, in, in La Rao, in 1996, Tour de France, uh, the day before, Indurain uh, suffered already in Otacam. And the day after, in La Rao, it was, uh, I think, the day he said goodbye to the... It was yeah. his definitive abdication. Exactly. Yeah, one of the... If you, you speak to people who did that stage, they say it's one of the hardest yeah. stages the Tour de France has ever seen. I, there were a lot of people out, out of the time limit that day when the Tour finished in Pamplona. Exactly, and in that video with uh, Pedro Delgado, they don't speak about that, <laughs> you know. Then Pedro was saying, oh, well, there was a lot of cuttings, you know, and editing and so on, but it's, they, don't, they <laughs> don't mention it. So, but yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be any... interesting. Eh? After the Tourmalet, this day is going to be very, very hard. Yeah, and for anyone maybe newer to the sport, again, we, we say this a lot on the telly for anyone coming along. Um, Miguel Indurain was, of course, 
from that region, from down in Navarra. So even more of a sore wound to look back on after all these years. And stage 13, I mean, I suppose if people are going to talk about the Queen stage, they would probably look at stage 13 with the Obisque de Spondel, which the Tour de France premiered last year, and the Tourmalet um, from the Luce Saint-Sauveur side. Um, I have mixed feelings about the biggest sort of climb or the... As I say, the queen stage of the Vuelta a España finishing on top of a French mountain. I just sometimes, particularly when other Grand Tours go to France, it just feels a little bit, the race can feel a little bit ignored, overlooked. I remember when the Giro d'Italia went to Rizul in 2016 a fantastic stage where Esteban Chavez sort of well he kissed he said goodbye to his chances of winning the race overall I think or did he win that stage no actually I might be getting this wrong maybe that was the stage where he took the pink jersey um anyway it was it was a key stage in that year's race and it just felt like a bit of a downer um it felt like the race was being loaned to another country that didn't really care about it for a day and I'm not sure I'm not sure. I was talking to somebody uh, on a trip to um, northern Spain actually the other week about this, and it was somebody who followed cycling from a distance, like a lot of Spaniards do. They follow it on the radio. They hear the updates and what have you. They don't necessarily watch it, but they just cannot, uh, sort of non-cycling fans, cannot get it into their heads how a race like the Vuelta, like the Tour, like the Giro goes to another country. And they're like, what are you doing? And it was a proper sort of real moaning long tirade of, of anger about it. And they didn't really have too much invested in cycling. But uh, yeah, we, 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 um, I c- you can understand the economic impact. And I think you've talked a lot about this in the environmental factor as well, Daniel, in the last couple of years. But it's not an easy sell, is it, trying to explain this sport to people sometimes? <laughs> Well, that does take us to stage 15. Um, as you've both mentioned, well, stage 15 finishing Lecumberri, where Marc Soler won in 2020. It's a slightly different finale this time. Um, the, there's going to be a double ascent of the Zuarrarate in the finale. Last time we went up the Alto de San Miguel. Um, it's not quite as difficult this year, but it'll still be a good stage, I'm sure. And that's, of course, the Movistar home stage, really, stage 15. Um, yeah. Rob, stage 16 week three we resume in cantabria we resume very close to one of the one of our favorite riders on the cycling podcast um over the last 20 years or so the home of oscar freire torre la vega um and take us take us into madrid from the start of stage 16 will you Yep, so no Euskadi this year, no Basque country. We skip that. We skip La Rioja as well, but we do go, as you said, to Cantabria, which comes next. After that day in Cantabria, we go to Asturias, the principality that often decides the Vuelta España, mountainous, different type of mountains, not necessarily necessarily always as high, but there's plenty of them, and they're usually pretty steep, aren't they? Um, cover your ears now if you're of a nervous disposition, because coming up is a pretty nasty word. The Angliru. The Angliru returns. And it's only really in the same category as one of the mountain, isn't it, in World Grand Tour Cycling. That is Monte Zoncolan. There can only be those two who strike as much fear into the hearts of bike riders. And probably as much excitement and entertainment into spectators as well. Because it's that sort of different 
epic sort of build-up, isn't it? It's uh, something we'll talk about all year. It's a monstrous soffer fest of a day. The usual questions about gear ratios and all that sort of stuff, what gear they're going to be using. But what will really count on the day of the Anglidu is who's the strongest to the top. Pretty simple. There's another hard day in Asturias after that. Um, it's a brand new finish, not too far from Oviedo. And then the race after that goes south, starts that journey to Madrid, really. Another chance for crosswinds back into Castilla Leon, the Meseta. Um, and if the race hasn't already been decided by the time we get to the Spanish capital, there's a day up and down around the Sierra de Guadarrama. Over 4,000 metres, over 200 kilometres, which is quite unusual for the Vuelta España, certainly at that time of year, and certainly for the penultimate stage. That's got to be ridden before the Cava glasses are raised on the ride towards the famous fountain at Cibeles, right in the heart of the Spanish capital, just down the road from where Laura's sitting right now. Rob, you mentioned stage 20, the penultimate stage. We talked about what's going to be the queen stage. Stage 20 at the Vuelta. Well, since 2021, it's been known as the Yo me quedo por aquí, señores stage. The Superman <laughs> Lopez stage. Um, very similar to the day when he famously got off his bike in 2021. That was in Galicia. But in terms of profile, 10 climbs that day. Um, 10 third category clients and that is well it has the potential to be a scintillating day in the Sierra de Guadarrama which has often decided the Vuelta a España but it's often decided the Vuelta a España with longer climbs bigger climbs climbs like the Navaserrada but that day is a bit of a mini classic and anything could happen couldn't it Laura? Yeah. With 10, 10 third category climbs I mean it's crazy and if they are going they are going to be <laughs> cooked already totally tired after uh, these 3 weeks i don't know i i, I can't tell you if it's going to be still open the race it's if it's going to be really important or not because i don't know really what to expect with this uh, i mean all these mountains and all these you know the difficulties and so on so what do you think because I, right now, I'm not very optimistic. I think it's not going to be as spectacular as we think because of how hard it is. But, well, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, we don't really know who's going to go yet, do we? We know a few of the names. We know that Juan Ayuso will go. I think, I don't know about you guys, I know he hasn't said definitively whether he will or he won't, but I, I think Remco Avenepoel will defend his title because if he, if he does the Giro d'Italia in the spring, I can't see him you know, twiddling his thumbs late, you know, late in the summer if there's another Grand Tour to do and, and potentially win. Um, so it's, it's obviously difficult to predict. We know that Tadej Pogacar is not going to do the weather. I think Primoz Roglic will look at this route and like it. Certainly the Primoz Roglic of yesteryear, um, the Primoz Roglic who would take time bonuses at the end of you know, 10 kilometer climbs that have often finished welter stages. He His mouth will be watering. But Laura, I'm, I also wonder, was anyone talking yesterday about how many stages there are that could be affected by the wind? Because I see three or four um, where, you know, stage 19, for example, the earliest stage we talked about uh, Zaragoza, there's a history yeah. of welter stages in that area being affected by the wind yeah, as well. Zaragoza, I think the one you mentioned, Rob, when they are going uh, down to yeah, Tarragona. Tarragona and down to Madrid as well on their way. Yeah, but not so many. They, they, it was not a factor that was mentioned yesterday, like a key factor of the race. 
Um, but uh, now that you were speaking about the, the, the riders that could go, I wonder how the world championships are going to impact in this uh, being before, in between the Tour and the Vuelta. So I don't know. I don't know if it's going to affect, actually. Lara, we know or we're pretty sure that Eric Mas will be there, as he always is. I mean, he's talked about making a, a big goal of his in 2023. Um Last year was pretty significant. I thought it was significant being on the race as well. To, I felt a sort of stirring of interest among the Spaniards, partly because of the emergence of these two young stars, Carlos Rodriguez and Juan Ayuso. Um, what do we know about Carlos Rodriguez's program in 2023, if anything? Well, we don't know much uh, yet about it. I think they are being very conservative in that sense. I think they want to keep protecting him um, so I actually don't know if he if he's gonna be in La Vuelta or uh, do you know Rob no no and uh, Juan Ayuso clearly I think Ayuso will be there clearly yeah. he's gonna be in La Vuelta um, with yeah, Rodriguez exactly. I guess it's gonna depend on what happens with the contract situation isn't it because there's a lot of talk as whether I mean Movistar of hmm. well uh, there's talk that it's a done deal yeah exactly and if you're Ineos, do you want to be sending him with all that confidence and maybe having a really good world? Obviously, it shouldn't be the done thing, but we know it happens. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, th I think again. Uh, that's, and that's the thing about the Welter start list in general, isn't it? There's a lot of wait and see about it. There's a lot of what happens. I mean, you're saying that Pogacar mm -hmm. won't mm -hmm. go. What if he ends up having a nightmare at the tour and you know? God forbid, we don't, we don't want him to have to leave the race early. But just imagine, you know, he, uh, he suffers a Primoz Roglic and he has to leave the race after the first week. He's not going to want to sit on his backside all for the rest of the year, is he? Um, we don't know. And that, and that is, I think, one of the unique things of the world, of where it is in the calendar. Again, you mentioned the World Championships in Scotland there. Yeah. Is Remco Evenepoel going to try and defend? Because we know that's a really difficult circuit around Glasgow as well. Um, there's all sorts that could happen between now and then. Um, and yeah. I think... One thing to be certain is there are certain riders who will plan for it, like Embrick Mass and people like that, but uh, we'll probably have to wait until two weeks before to know a, a real proper idea of the start list, won't we? Well, Laura, Rob, Rob, Laura and Rob. Um, the Chiro's only three months, be, four months away, mate. Yes, that will be the 2023 Vuelta España. A few months to go. We don't even know the official song yet. Laura, you talked about the songs that were played yesterday at the presentation, but I can't wait. And I, I can't remember what, what time you traditionally it's released, but the official hymn of the Vuelta España, which I'll no doubt enjoy. Rob will no doubt detest, but um, that's something to look forward to. This I think spring, we want a Freddie uh, and Montserrat re-release, don't we? It's got to be. I don't think you're going to get that. Um, Laura, the season is about to start. I think you're about to embark on your first trip, your first journey of the season, your first assignment. I think you're about to go to Argentina. And I just thought we'd take the opportunity because we've got you here on the Cycling Podcast this week to ask you about your connections with Argentina before we ask you about the race you're going to see. I mentioned in your intro today that you moved from Argentina to Spain at some point. I think you were born in Spain and then you moved to Argentina. Um, just tell us about why you're in Argentina. Yeah, I moved when I was four years old because my father was a journalist working for Agencia EFE, press agency, And uh, he moved there like the, um, how do you say, like delegate of the press agency in Buenos Aires. So he moved from for one year and then 
he told all the family to go with him to join him just to, to make the experience a bit longer and it was uh, really special because um I mean, I remember almost everything from that time, you know, when you suddenly you find yourself with four years old, um, you know, abroad in a different country. And also it was very special because now it has changed the um, situation of the different delegations uh, around the world. But that time they were like old buildings. So normally the agency was uh, below and the house was, uh, you know, <laughs> up there so you had to cross the agency every day going back from school hello hello <laughs> you know? and yeah it was really really nice and yeah my father was working there the thing is he was working many many hours uh, for that reason because he it was just uh, the office was just there and it was very I, special I can't understand how you would grow up in the same household as a journalist and then want to pursue that profession as an adult um surely well, surely it would put you off i don't know it, it, it well i didn't want to become a journalist honestly i i studied media studies i think it's in english and i was more interested in in cinema and so on but um well <laughs> here i am but it was nice because in the in the night when the when there was no one in the agency, I, I used to go there to, you know, to play and with the papers and the, I don't know how to call the, the, the machines they had where they received the news constantly, you know, in Spanish is uh, teletipos, I don't know, in, in English. So it was nice to pretend to be, you know, someone working in something that you really don't understand. But it was like my my playroom. So it was it was really fun, and then also at that point, especially in Argentina, because then we mo we moved for to Chile for another three years. But in th at that time in Argentina, his role it was as a journalist, the delegate, but also like a kind of ambassador in Buenos Aires. So a lot of people from culture in Spain, in Argentina, they were coming to to our house my my mom was organizing like these big parties and dinners and you know i was always in the, in the front door with a list of guests and they were coming out oh, who, uh, who are you okay blah blah and you had i don't know i have good memories with mercedes sosa which is a very famous uh, argentinian was a very famous argentinian singer but then many spanish actors with which i didn't know of course but when you see it now with the perspective it was uh really en enrichful and and I was always there in the conversations like in the adults conversation and and I really enjoy it and we also we have like a very good friend of us is a, a very important journalist uh, Rosa Calaf maybe uh, Rob can know her um, she's a correspondent from Televisión Española and, and she's amazing every time she comes at home and she speaks about her travels she's been in every country in the world I think she just misses like 10 countries to visit and it's amazing and you know I think for me that's been like really a really important part of, of my personal story and how long were you in Argentina in total Laura? Four years, four years. And then I've been going back with holidays, tour of San Luis. It's, it was a very good opportunity to go there and visit some friends and, and the city of Buenos Aires as well. So now I'm going back. 
And in, yeah, in a couple of weeks, we've got the Vuelta San Juan. I probably, like a lot of other people, I still get confused because my Argentine, Argentinian geography is poor. I mean, a couple of days ago, I was watching a documentary called The Alpinist about a climber who tragically, well, he tragically passed away on an expedition in Alaska, but he spent a lot of time in Patagonia. And I think I know a little bit about Patagonia, but I had to check the map just to double check exactly where it was in Argentina. Um, San Juan is a different, it's a different part of Argentina to San Luis when well, the, the traditional curtain raiser of the season used to take place, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's very close to the to the Andes mountain. I think actually it's part of the valley of the mountains, of the Andes mountains. It's close to Santiago. I'm opening right now as we are talking uh, the map. But uh, yeah, it's very close to Santiago de Chile and to Mendoza as well. So San Luis, let's say that San Juan is closer to the frontier with Chile and uh, Mendoza. And San Luis, it was more kind of inside the country. I mean, it's such a huge country, but... Well, you understand. Kind of in the middle between Buenos Aires and Santiago. San Luis was like in the middle and San Juan is more up in the north a little bit and closer to the to the frontier and to the mountains of Los Andes. And Rob, it should be a pretty interesting race. We've got Remco Avonapol due to start his season there. Egan Bernal is starting his season there as well. We talked about riders possibly going to the Vuelta a España. Bernal's main objective, he said, I think, is going to be the Tour de France this year. But there's, I guess there's a lot of uncertainty about what kind of Egan Bernal we're going to see in 2023. We know he's been training pretty hard throughout the winter. What do you expect from him this year? Um, what do I expect? I'm not sure what I expect, in all honesty. Um, I know what I... A very different-looking Egan Bernal. Well, we know to expect that. Yes. Um, I'm not passing comment on that. I, uh, but Well, we're not, I'm not passing <laughs> comment. I'm stating a fact. He, yes. he looks quite different. He does, he's yeah. had um He's had a medical procedure and he looks quite mm, different. Yeah. Um, and, but Egan Bernal, again, we hope we can get back to his best just for the competition. Again, we all wanted to see, didn't we? Pogacar and Bernal. Then, of course, Evan Apul came on the scene and there's several other young riders as well now. I think Ineos Grenadiers are taking a chunk of what we can expect to be the Giro team this year going with him. Uh, Ganna and Viviani in particular are going to go there. Um, Marvi Star are sending most of their Latin American-based riders. So you've got the young Brazilian Vinicius. He's going to be, uh, not to be confused with the Real Madrid, Vinicius. He's not Vinny Jr. here, but he's riding, uh, this is Vinicius Rangel Costa, alongside Eina Rubio, Gaviria, Abner Gonzalez from Puerto Rico as well. Um, and then Sudal Quickstep. I'm trying to get used to calling them that, trying to get used to calling them that, but they're taking Evenepoel, who, who actually made a big mark on this race, didn't he? Just before, the year before the pen, pandemic, this was his first big exploit in stage racing, really, wasn't it? Um, I remember him sort of destroying everybody in the time trial. He's going with Jakobsen, uh, Lampard, and, and Jan Hirt, who's going to be one of the new mountain domestiques for, for Evenepoel, who's going to go to the Giro in there. So I think a few teams are sort of taking riders, starting to look at the Giro d'Italia, but we've also got Sam Bennett turning up as well and um, yeah um, it'd be an interesting mix and we don't quite know where everybody is do we at this stage that's what makes this first couple of months right racing really interesting because it's not necessarily always you know the most experimented or the best rider who wins the races it's where they are on their journey to, to peak fitness isn't it 
Well, that will be, that is the Vuelta a San Juan, which is coming up, I think, from the 17th of January. We've also got the Tour Down Under starting just over a week's time, I believe. I think next week on the podcast, we're going to have Dan Martin, um, who should have been on the podcast this week. He would have been useful to talk about Catalonia, because he's lived in Catalonia and Andorra for a number of years. Em, Laura, you, in the meantime, will be, well, you'll be putting out more episodes of El Cycling Podcast. Um, What have you got? in store for the next few weeks on that anything that you'd like to tease or tell us about well um as you know i it's okay to say no it's absolutely fine if you haven't planned anything (laughs) no no we are we are working on that because as you know last year it was also um joseba beloki with me and that was uh very powerful you know people really like to listen to him i know that because i'm a good friend of him and i know how interesting he he can be. Rob knows it as well because uh, you've been talking with him many times. So right now, Joseba and myself, we are working like in, you know, different content that uh, we can do in the next um, weeks. So hopefully <laughs> the thing is that it doesn't help when you have to travel and, you know, and the other one is staying here and so on. But um, hopefully I can give you some more information in the in the next days. No problem. I mean, if you're looking to recruit a third member, there are there are a number of Spanish speakers who are without gainful employment at the moment, as we talked about. Nido Quintana, maybe he could be a candidate. <laughs> yeah. the, third, yeah. the third wheel maybe. on El Cycling Podcast. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to thank you both um, for your company today. And, well, we'll be hearing from both of you, whether it's on the Spanish El Cycling Podcast or with us in the next few months. Um, as I said, I'll be back next week with Dan Martin and a N other, not sure who yet. But we'll Daniel, I have to say sorry that yes. Rob has your book as his background, and I wonder why he doesn't have mine. Um, yours is actually in the living room, underneath the okay, okay. record player. I can I can grab it if you want. I also sh- should uh, you know add the because I have Daniel's book as well. That was so next that was time. Not, that was not in your contract, <laughs> Laura. Okay. But I'm going to thank you both and I'm going to wish you, well, a uh, uh, good end to the week and a very happy 2023. Thank, thank you. you Bye-bye. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.